0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome my good friend, Ina Marna, Dr. Angelica Gutierrez, to the guest chair today. As we talk about the imposter phenomenon, Angelica earned her BA and PhD from UCLA and her MPP from the University of Michigan. She has won numerous awards and accolades, including being named one of Poets & Quants Best 40 Under 40 Business Professors in the World. In addition to being an Associate Professor of Management at Loyola Marymount University, she is a contributor for Inc. Magazine, and her research has appeared in numerous media outlets. Dr. Gutierrez, welcome to Diversity Matters.
1: Thank you so much for that incredible introduction. I just wanna say how super excited I am to be on your podcast. You cover very important topics, and and I've seen the people that you typically have on your podcast, so thank you. It's truly an honor to be here.
0: Trust me, the honor is mine. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. Frontrunnewjersey.com is a news and information blog highlighting African-American culture and leadership in South Jersey. It seeks to spotlight outstanding individuals and events in the Black community often missed by the mainstream media. Check us out at FrontRunnerNewJersey.com today. FRNJ is brought to you by AC Joseph Media, a multimedia public relations company. You can find us on the FRNJ site. Angelica, mi hermana, muchas gracias por venir aquí conmigo. My PhD project family is representing hard this season but you are my family from day one. I still remember my first Management Doctoral Student Association Conference in August, 2008. You were so kind to me and it appeared that you were going to nominate me for an officer role, (laughs) which completely terrified me as a brand new PhD student. As fate would have it, I enjoyed serving alongside you as an officer a few years later and have truly been so proud to see all of the success That you've been having in this field. So I feel like the imposter phenomenon has gone mainstream now, but I'm sure there are still many in the general public who do not truly fully understand what it is and how they might be affected by it. So Angelica, let's get started. Now, before we go deep into this topic, let's just make sure we all are on the same page. So could you start off by explaining to our listeners a little bit about the history of imposter syndrome? How do we come up with this term?
1: Sure. So the imposter phenomenon refers to feelings of inadequacy that individuals may experience. And individuals may have this fear that other people around them are going to discover that they're a fraud and that they actually don't belong in the positions that they occupy. And the imposter phenomenon, the term was coined by two psychologists, So Pauline Klans and Susan Eimes, And they had been counseling hundreds of women. And so one of the things that they had observed about these women is that despite having impeccable credentials and being highly successful, these women had a difficult time internalizing their success and genuinely believed that they were imposters. They believed that they actually didn't belong in the positions that they occupy. So it was based on all of those observations that these two psychologists developed the term, the imposter phenomenon. Now, what's interesting is that in most academic and popular press articles, this phenomenon is typically referred to as the imposter syndrome. And, and, And it's very likely because the experience was observed in this clinical setting, in a counseling setting. And so it's often referred to as the imposter syndrome. But one of the reasons why I try to avoid referring to it as a syndrome is because the term suggests it's some type of a medical condition, some type of a illness or a disease. So referring to it as such may actually make it even more stigmatizing for people to openly discuss their experience with that.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So for our listeners, you can tell the language that we even use thus far, right? How I started off with imposter phenomenon, but then I wanted to ask you about the syndrome because of the genesis of the word. So I'm glad that you basically shared that history with our listeners so that they can know. That when you hear imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, we're talking about the same thing, but it's more appropriate today to talk about it as a phenomenon versus a syndrome. So, thank you for that. So, what made you interested in this topic as a research area? And um, if you care to share, have you ever felt that feeling of being an imposter?
1: So, (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm sure you've heard the saying in, in academia that. As researchers, we don't find a topic, the topic finds us. And it's certainly true about the imposter phenomenon. So my primary motivation for researching it is that I have personally been impacted by it. And I'll be very open with you. I continue to have these imposter feelings even now. After being promoted to associate professor and earning tenure, I continue to feel like an imposter in a lot of spaces that that I'm in. And so one of the first experiences that I had with this phenomenon was as a kid. And and as a five or a six-year-old, I mean, I obviously didn't know that these imposter feelings that I was experiencing had a a term. I didn't know that it was a, a thing. But I remember in grade school just feeling as though I didn't belong. And the reason why I felt that way is because I don't know if I've shared this in the past with you, but I grew up speaking only Spanish. And when I started elementary school, I didn't know English. So it was very difficult for me to communicate effectively with my teachers and my classmates. So that right away made me feel like I didn't belong because of that language barrier. And I remember that I struggled so much in school that my grade school teacher and my principal told my mom that it was evident that I had a learning disability and that I wasn't going to be capable of learning in a traditional school system. And mom, may she rest in peace, she knew that I had the ability to to learn, but she knew that I couldn't, I wasn't doing very well in school because of this language barrier, because I simply didn't know English. And so I'll be open with you, those comments, especially at a a very early age, were very stigmatizing. And I continued to feel like an imposter throughout my, my school, throughout my education. And I remember feeling like an imposter, you know, as a PhD student at UCLA. and I don't know if I've ever shared this experience with you. But I remember questioning my intelligence and my competence when I discovered that one of the professors had said that my third-year research paper was crap. And so just hearing that was horrible, but how I discovered that that professor had made that comment was even more horrible because I I discovered it because one of my cohort mates, another doctoral student had mentioned it to me. I'll never forget. I remember it was a Friday and I had just shared my third year research paper in a lab, which was intended, you know, to provide doctoral students like myself feedback on their work. And so this third year research paper was supposed to be completely independent work and it was supposed to be of publishable quality, even though we were only third year students. <laughs> And so I remember I, I presented that paper, I got feedback during the research seminar. And I remember going back to the doctoral student office and, and I was working. And one of my cohort mates came and he said, Hey, I just heard from so-and-so, which was one of the, the professors, that another professor, and and this, you know, this doctoral student gave me that person's name, said that your 30-year research paper is crap. And I just remember being devastated when I heard that, right? Because immediately I started to question my intelligence. I questioned my competence. I started wondering whether I even belonged in that PhD program. And so (laughs) that was actually one of the experiences that motivated me to research the imposter phenomenon, which I refer to as imposterization. Because that experience helped me understand that I was starting to feel like an imposter because of an interaction and a comment that somebody had made in that environment. It wasn't necessarily a me issue. It was the type of messages that I was getting from those around me.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So you have shared uh, the first story with me before about the teacher, you know, labeling you as someone who would not be successful, who has a learning ability. I think that's how you shared it with me before. And so I want to say thank you for sharing it with our listeners, because your story is so remarkable and so inspirational. And thank you for being vulnerable and willing to share that story, because it will help so many people. Because unfortunately, you and I both know how many times a similar type of story is shared, particularly for people in our communities when it's not intelligence, not competence at all. Like in your case, it was simply English was not your first language, right? Like how many students out there are English is their first language, but they're being told that they're dumb, they're stupid, they can't learn. Um, and so thank you. Thank you so much for being vulnerable enough to share that with us because it will help. I know it will help so many people and so many people unfortunately can't identify with that story. The second one, you have not shared that with me. And so again, like I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And you know, for us being in this field of academia, we know it's a tough, tough environment and we always get constant rejections. So it definitely does a number to someone's self-esteem and their, their self-efficacy, right? And so it's important to give feedback. Like no one is saying that that's not important in our field, right? It, we always need feedback. The reality is, particularly as a doc student. We don't actually do stuff like work. That's why we're training, right? And so I like how you, through your presentations and through your writing, you are moving the conversation even further along to not think about it from an individual standpoint of a positive phenomenon for the person, but looking at the organizational level or societal level, the things that we do and calling it imposterization. And so... You touched on it a bit more a little bit in your early comment, but I want to ask if you could elaborate even more to explain to us this shift that you would like to see take place with imposterization and why it's so important for us to change that narrative as we think about this
1: Yeah, so absolutely so one of the one of the things that I have found is so problematic about using that term imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome. So one of the things that that I think is so problematic about most of the research on the topic and also the discussions that we have about the topic, one of the things that I find so problematic is that the research and these discussions tend to focus on the individual, right? The individual is viewed as being the issue. And even when we talk about the strategies that are promoted, right, to counter these imposter feelings, these strategies tend to take this very fix the individual approach. So I'm sure you've heard of strategies such as recite positive affirmations or take an inventory of your successes. Well, those strategies may be very limited in their effectiveness if you're feeling like an imposter because of the environment around you, because of the organizations that that you may be in. So so that's why I decided on this term, imposterization, because it, it does take into consideration the role that the environment plays in triggering some of these imposter feelings. Right. So it's not just an issue with us. It's an issue with the spaces that we find ourselves in. And so I use the term imposterization to refer to the policies and practices and seemingly harmless interactions in the workplace that either make or intend to make us question our intelligence, our competence, and our sense of belonging in the spaces that we occupy. And I think it's it's very important for us to start changing the narrative and stop thinking about the issue as, you know, being an issue about the individual and really start examining how these environments are triggering the imposterization of individuals.
0: I love that. I love that. So thank you for that explanation. And so going back to your example in grad school, right, just to make it clearer for people, for our listeners because uh, I do know a lot of people listen to this and they try to put into practice many of the things that we talk about. So, you know, you have a leader, in organization, and, or in this case, academia, you have a supervisor or a professor, and they say, well, you know, if something is, not to say this is the case for you, but just to give them the roadmap. Uh, you know, if something was not up to the quality that I expect it to be, right, like I should be able to tell someone that, how do you tell people something, right? How do you give feedback that's important? Like, did you have a relationship with this person, right? So what would be some of the advice that you would give to someone who, again, not necessarily in your case, but if they do need to tell someone some feedback that is perceived to be bad, right, it's not good feedback, how should they do it so that imposterization doesn't occur, right?
1: Yeah, that's such a a great question. So first, (laughs) We can start off very simply by not calling the person's work crap. That type of verbiage, that those terms, that type of terminology has no, you know, place.
0: Developmental, right.
1: Exactly. It has no place in in academia. And, And you know what? Feedback is absolutely critical, especially in our PhD programs. I mean, the whole objective behind a doctoral program is to provide us with training and to help us become great scholars. So delivering feedback is absolutely critical. One of the things that, that I have found to be very effective, and this is certainly something that I do with my research assistants, is you can express what you think is of value or what you think is important in the paper that they have produced and simply say, you know, I really believe that this paper could be stronger if you consider doing X, Y, and Z. Great right way. You're delivering the same message. You're, you're still letting the doctoral student know that that work needs, that, that paper needs work, right? You're letting them know that there are different ways that they can strengthen it. but you are delivering the message in a more effective developmental way, as opposed to simply saying your paper is crap. And you know what? Yeah, a lot of our papers are supposed to be crap.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Absolutely right.
1: (laughs) Especially at that early stage of a doctoral program, you're, you're a third year student, you still have some way to go, right? There's still a lot of learning that you have to experience. A lot of classes that you still have to take, a lot of data that you still have to analyze, a lot of methods that you still have to learn. And that's part of the process, right? So just avoid uh, using those terms and simply be very uh, open with the student. Let them know that you're very interested in, in supporting their development, right? I appreciate what you asked. You asked me if I had a relationship. I didn't have a relationship with the professor right? Who said that my paper was crap. And, and now that I think about it, perhaps I shouldn't have given much weight <laughs> to a comment from somebody that I really didn't know. Um, I had a very good relationship with my PhD advisor. He was very supportive. He was terrific. But that's something that, that you can do is that you start establishing a good relationship with your students so that they feel comfortable with you and can trust that you have their best interest at heart.
0: That is definitely something that I wanted to point out. And so I'm glad that we went there. It's not, not, not at all, not being able to give people critical feedback or the feedback that they need. Relationships are so important. And the intentions that you have behind feedback is so important for people in organizations, particularly people in our communities Latinx communities, African-American communities, because you need to be aware of the stereotypes that are out there that create this imposterization for us. And so if you have the intention of wanting to be developmental and to wanting to assist, then absolutely, you know, establish a relationship. Or if you don't have that relationship already with the people, tell them in ways that they can feel and sense that you're genuine wanting to help them because we can... Easily sense where people aren't being genuine with us <laughs> and they truly don't have the best intentions. So it's so important for people to understand that in organizations. If you're trying to make positive changes, the relationship building is foundational always. But beyond that, your intent and in being developmental. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that. So, you know, as I learn more and more, as I talk to you and, and read your writings and then the writings of other people, I came across this. In the work, and I found it was so ironic that you know, as organizations push for more authenticity, that that can actually increase these feelings of imposterization, which is not what most people would think about, right? Uh, so, could you help us understand perhaps this connection?
1: Yeah, and <laughs> and it does sound ironic that employees are being encouraged to bring their authentic selves to work, but that can actually trigger imposterization. Right. And so imposterization comes in when the organization is actually not receptive to an employee's authenticity. And I'll give you uh, a couple of examples that have come up in in my interviews and in my research with various groups. So (laughs) I've had a couple of um, Latino participants, for example that have mentioned that they're very expressive in their communication style. And I know you might not be able to see me, but I use my hands a lot. <laughs> and so it's just part of who I am. And, and these Latino participants have been told by their supervisors to be less passionate and less expressive in their communication style. I've also done research on Black women, for example, and and they have mentioned not being able to wear their natural hair to work because it's not considered professional. And our PhD project sister, Tina Opie, does extensive research on that. And I've also interviewed individuals who have mentioned that they tend to pronounce their names in their native language. I do as well, as, as you introduced me, Angelica Gutierrez. And the feedback that they've gotten from their employers is that they've been asked if they can use a a nickname or a shorter version of their name. Or employers may be so quick to simply anglicize the employee's name. And so what they don't recognize is that how we pronounce our name is often connected with our identity, with our sense of authenticity. And by making these comments, by giving this type of feedback to employees, you can actually imposterize them. You can make them feel as though they don't belong because you're essentially asking them to modify a part of themselves. And you're asking them to modify their identity in a way that's going to be better aligned with your standards of professionalism. And there's extensive research that does find that in many organizations, these standards of professionalism tend to be very narrowly defined. They're typically defined by white male standards. That's the irony, right? That a lot of organizations are encouraging employees to bring their authentic selves to work. But when they show up as our true selves, they're actually asked to modify who they are.
0: So glad that you made that connection for us because it is. Is really ironic, right? Because there is a huge push from organizations because, of, like you said, a lot of the work that Tina Opie has done, our former mentor, God rest her soul, Kathy Phillips, you know, a lot of the work that she has done, published and done as well. So authenticity, just like imposter phenomenon, right? It's like this mainstream thing now. A lot of people talking about it in organizations, but we have to peel back. And again, like what are the boxes of acceptability <laughs> that organizations are putting people in and how that, again, can trigger further imposterization of people. So, so I love uh, your explanation about that. So to the point of going mainstream, right, because we see this all the time, this term in the mainstream all the time now, what are some things that you think people get wrong about it? The imposter phenomenon, imposterization, you know, what are some things that people think they know, but they just, it's just so wrong?
1: So, (laughs) I'm laughing because I I was just thinking about an experience that I had during a paper development session. One of the comments that the associate editor made, and this is part of of what other people have gotten wrong, is that they assumed that the imposter phenomenon was just a fancy term for low self-esteem. There's this assumption that imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome just means that somebody doesn't have a healthy level of self-esteem. And that's actually not true. So there are some studies that find that self-esteem or low self-esteem is highly correlated with the imposter phenomenon, but they're distinct constructs. And one of the ways that I often explain the difference is that Whereas low self-esteem may keep us from applying for a position or low self-esteem may keep us from applying for a competitive graduate program, the imposter phenomenon may not necessarily keep us from applying. We may very well go through the application process, but once we get that position or we get admitted, we tend to make external attributions for that success. So we're very quick to say, oh, I got this job or I got into this program just because I was lucky or they just let me in because they needed more women or people of color. So there's this tendency to make external attributions for that success. And those individuals may continue to have this fear that it's only a matter of time before somebody discovers that they actually don't belong in that position or in that program. So that's one way that I I try to explain the difference between self-esteem or low self-esteem and the imposter phenomenon. So that's certainly something that people get wrong is that they equate them. They assume that they're the same thing and they're actually not. Something else that I have seen people get wrong is that when an individual expresses feeling like an imposter, when they mention that they don't feel like they belong in a certain space. Some people are very quick to label their experience as imposter syndrome. Oh, you're just experiencing this thing. It's called imposter syndrome. And again, it, it places a burden on that individual to essentially fix him or herself rather than taking a moment and encouraging that individual to examine how the environments that they're in may be making them question their sense of belonging or making them question their intelligence or their competence. That's something else that that I have seen people get wrong is that they're very quick to label people as having an issue with imposter syndrome rather than considering that the actual issue is imposterization.
0: And so I am so happy that we're having this conversation because I definitely want after this episode when it's published for more people to get that right, for more people to start asking questions differently. And for people, because I too experience imposterization (laughs) like you, right? People will be amazed, but there are so many times where we feel like we're going to get found out like, oh my God, like like people are going to say your time is up. You do not deserve any of this stuff. And I think it's particularly pertinent for our communities, right? Because we do deal. With stereotype threat so much. And so, particularly if you are only one or one of very few, it becomes so much more salient. And your performance is so much under a microscope and has so many ripple effects in terms of outcomes that it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And if people would stop and say, you know what, Angelica, it's this environment and reaffirm like all of the great things about you right or oh, you know what oscar <laughs> you know this comes up a lot in organizations in terms of how we get feedback or xyz i think that will be just such a refresher for so many employees so many people in organizations because clearly this work is important and has done great things for people to recognize oh there is a term right like it's not just me that's a term out there but I love what you're doing in terms of, uh, yes, we, we've gone this far, but now let's go further in terms of just taking it from the individual and look at the environmental settings and changing that language around that as well. So I, I'm just so thankful for the work that you're doing in this space. And I know it's just helping so many people. So as we move along with trying to help many people, so let's talk about it. You, you mentioned a few things organizations can do, but I'm going to ask if you can elaborate a little bit more on some of the ways that organizations can eliminate, or at the very least, right, we want them to decrease imposterization in, in their organizations. So help us out in terms of how you, because I know you consult with many organizations and so some of the things that you share.
1: There's quite a bit that organizations can do to avoid the imposterization of employees, right? So, so one of the things that I often encourage organizations to do is to carefully examine how their existing policies and and practices, how how the way they do business may be inadvertently causing employees to feel like they don't belong in that environment. So that's one of the first steps, right? Carefully analyzing how certain policies and practices that you have in place may be imposterizing your employees. And one of the things that I have seen that can trigger or that can be a form of imposterization is pay disparity. And we know that there is federal legislation, right, that requires employers to pay employees equally if they're performing equal work. But we also know of extensive research that does demonstrate that there are pay disparities among employees, specifically between men and women and even among women from different ethnic groups. And so the reason why pay disparities in an organization may be imposterizing your employees is because if an employee is performing the same work as somebody else in the organization and he or she discovers that they're actually getting paid less than their counterpart, that can be imposterizing. That can lead that employee to question their value To the company, that can make them feel as though their work is not valued as much as somebody else in the organization because they're not getting paid the same amount. So, pay disparities in your organization, make sure that they're not present because they can have this imposterizing effect. So, that's more at the organizational level. At the interpersonal level, one of the things that employers can do is, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is simply take the time to learn the correct pronunciation of your employee. There's so much to ensuring that you're getting it right. Because as I mentioned earlier, how an employee pronounces his or her name is often tied to their identity. And by asking them to shorten it or asking them to provide you with a nickname or simply anglicizing it, That could be a form of imposterization because you are conveying to that employee that their authentic self is not welcome. So so really take the time to do something as simple as correctly pronounce your employees' names, right? Let them know that they are welcome and that their identity is valued in that organization.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And it it also, if I may add, it, it signals to the people who are being imposterized, right? How important perhaps they think you are, like you're worth, like you're not again, whether intentional or unintentional, it may signal to the people well they may feel like, oh, I'm not worth enough to this person to get it right, or things like that, which is I know for many people that's not the signal that they want to send, right? So taking the time going a step further is really important. so thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, that will help a lot of people. Now, I always hesitate when I ask things at the individual level, right? Because I totally agree that we need to work and fix systems and you know, stay at the organizational level because those are the problems. But I do, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask because we all have to live in oppressive systems. They're not perfect right now. And so we still need to try to get up every day and do our best and then try to be our best selves in this system. So I will ask you, Understanding that I totally don't like the question, right, <laughs> I will ask you if you could give our listeners some advice on how they could deal with the imposterization, because we do know that there are some things we must have to still put up with and deal with in organizations.
1: Absolutely. That's such an excellent question, because <laughs> while the organizations are doing their job, we could, between a, a couple of things as well, to empower ourselves. And so one of the first articles that, that I actually wrote on the imposter phenomenon focused on individual level strategies that we can all implement to counter the effects of imposterization. And so one of, one of the things that I often recommend is to simply name or label the experience There's tremendous power in simply naming whatever it is that we're experiencing or whatever it is that we fear. So, name it. It's really a thing and it's imposterization. Another strategy that I often recommend is to normalize it. And this is especially important for communities of color, for professionals of color. Normalize these feelings. Recognize that other people of color experience the same feelings that you have. They may be questioning their intelligence. They may be questioning their competence. They may be questioning their sense of belonging, no matter how brilliant and how successful and how capable they are. So there's power in also recognizing that you're definitely not alone in experiencing these feelings. So normalize them. Another... The strategy that I offer is to take a moment to try to really identify what's triggering these feelings, like what's the origin of the imposter feelings that you may be experiencing. And the reason why that exercise could be very powerful is because it can help us understand that it's not an us issue, but rather the spaces that we're occupying. That exercise, questioning, where are these feelings coming from, that question can help us understand that perhaps we're having these feelings because of something that somebody said, something that somebody did, or a certain way that the organization may operate. It's a very important question to ask ourselves, where exactly are these feelings coming from? What's triggering them?
0: Thank you so much for giving us those wonderful strategies and you know the great thing about our job is we get to learn so much all the time so i love that about academia and many times our learning surprises us right and so i am curious if there are some like what is the most like surprising thing that you've learned about imposterization as you've been doing this research
1: I appreciate what you just mentioned about learning being a process, even for us as academics, as professors. And I can tell you that it's been a a learning experience for me to conduct research on this topic because I started referring to it as imposter phenomenon. I really thought it was just an imposter syndrome issue. So one of the things that, that I've learned through my research is that it's definitely not an issue with the individual, right? It's important for us to really examine our environments. I've had a lot of aha moments throughout this work because I mean, I'll be open with you. I really thought that it was just an imposter syndrome issue. I never had really stopped to think about how the environment plays a role And it wasn't until I started having conversations and started interviewing various groups that I discovered, wow, there's definitely something about the policies and practices in our organizations that may be causing us to feel this way. And one of the things that I have found very surprising is how much the term imposterization resonates with people. And when I, when I was thinking about the term and, and when I was starting to define it, I never imagined that it would capture what people have experienced. And it's been incredible, right, to get comments from the popular press articles that I've written or to get feedback from audiences where I'm doing these presentations. It's been great just to hear from so many people that, it fully captures how they have been feeling and how they have experienced this phenomenon. So that's been very surprising, just knowing that, that people can relate to this idea of the environment triggering the imposter feelings.
0: That's huge. That is huge. And, and I love how you reflected upon that in your answer. I love the fact that you talked about how you thought about it before and how you studied it before and where you are right now. Because as researchers, right, like we love all of our work. Most of the times we love all of our work, but it's a journey. And so for listeners out there, it's important for listeners to know how research works, how science works. There are things that could be in reputable journals and things that at that moment, the person may have thought that to be the case, but we update, we update our thinking. Adam Grant, you know, our colleague at Warden, he has a a book called Think Again, and I love his book, and it's all about, you know, forcing yourself to stop for a moment and think again what you thought about those previous assumptions. So I am so just, like, this conversation has been so great for me because it made me reflect on a lot of things, but also think about some things that I may have published, you know, maybe a decade before, or whether or not I'm still there, or if I adjusted my thinking on some of those things that's the beauty of academia. Like that's the beauty of, of the conversation, the ongoing conversation with scholarship. So I'm glad that you shared that gem with us uh, so people can get a little insight into academia and, and scholarship and, and the work that we do. Because I don't think many people truly get that, truly understand that. And, you know, they are like, you know, Gutierrez in 2012 said X, Y, Z, right? Well, it's, we're 2022 now. So <laughs> she may have changed her opinions of what she said. <laughs> As we come to a close, I want to ask you, where are we going? You have introduced imposterization to us in this literature. So what are the new questions that you are interested in trying to explore answers to? Where do you see this research um, going?
1: One of the things that I'm trying to focus a little bit more on are the specific policies and, and practices that current organizations have that may be inadvertently imposterizing employees. So I'm definitely taking a a deeper dive in terms of what may be some of those internal structures that are continuing to imposterize employees. I'm also starting to research the specific measures that organizations can take to avoid triggering some of these imposter feelings in their employees. And it really comes down, well, a big part of it is being very deliberate in terms of the environment that you create for your employees and ensuring that that environment is going to be supportive and inclusive of those employees. And going back to our earlier discussion about being, you know, open to learning and evolving in how we think about things, I'm definitely at that point where I continue to be open with this research. I absolutely enjoy interviewing individuals, hearing from them what their experience is, and allowing those experiences and their narratives to inform my research directions. And and I find that approach to be very valuable because if it hadn't been for comments that people had made, if it hadn't been for my interview participants, it's unlikely that my research would have evolved as much as it has now. So in terms of where I'm going with this research, I would say that much of it depends on What employees and what my research participants express, because I I definitely allow them to dictate what they believe is of value when it comes to my research pursuits.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Angelica, for joining me in the guest chair today. You've enlightened us so much with your wisdom. And I know you gave so many leaders a lot to think about in terms of how they can disrupt the imposterization that might be prevalent in their organizations. I wish you, Mia Ramanda, continued success. And I do hope that a book on this topic is in your near future.
1: It definitely is. I'm working on it, especially during sabbatical. In about a year, I should have a solid draft.
0: Excellent. I'm so happy to hear that. So you heard it here first, listeners. Be on the lookout for the book from Dr. Angelica Gutierrez. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, WH Consulting Firm, LLC. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love.